Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's work. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Everybody doing all right today? I'm going to give you one more chance because it's a little bit delayed. Everybody doing okay today? All right. Hey, listen, I'm glad that you're here. And you chose to be here on this Sunday at the end of spring break, the week after Easter. It was like spring all week, and then it's fall again today. And I don't understand. And, and here's the problem. If you're a meteorologist or you have a family member that's a meteorologist, I'm going to offend you in the next 30 seconds. So you probably want to earmuff it. But here's the deal. I think they're making it up. I do. I don't, I don't think that meteorologists have any better guests than you or I have. I think when we watch the news and we see them in the newsroom or whatever it is, the Weather Channel thing or whatever, like I just think that those are like turned around VCRs behind them. Like I don't think they tell them anything. Even my weather app the other day, it was pouring down rain at my house. I pulled up the weather app on my phone. It had a little pin where I was at. It showed me. I zoomed in like it was right there. I was there and it said, you know, partly cloudy, chance of rain. I'm like, you're a liar. It is raining at my house. I think they're just making it up. I think they're guessing like you and I are. But you woke up this morning and you said, hey, I want to make sure that I get to Canton Church. So we're glad that you're here. You're here on a great day and you're here in the middle of a great season of our church uh, over these last few weeks and the last few months. Like God's just been doing something really great here at Canton Church last week. If you were here for Easter last week, would you say woo? Who? If you weren't here, I'm not going to make you say anything because that would be embarrassing. But we had an incredible week last week. Um, we had our Easter service on Wednesday. For those that were heading out of town for spring break, we had two Good Friday services, and then we had two Easter services on Sunday. And so for Easter, we had over 500 people. We had almost 700 people for the week. And here's the, the best number of the whole week for me, was we had 18 people say yes to Jesus in a relationship with him. Absolutely. That's awesome. And so we're so excited about that. And, and you heard it already. Today, we are kicking off a brand new series called Dirt. And here's what I want you to do, okay? I, you can only get away with this at Canton Church today. If you say it outside of Canton Church, you say it at another time, in another place, in another context, to other people, you're probably going to get punched in the face. But here's what I want you to do. With all the love that you can muster, I want you to look at the person right beside you and say, you're a dirtbag. Now, if you say that, listen to me, if you say that outside of this room without the context that I just provided for you, they're going to hate you. But seriously, like all of you, you're dirtbags and I love you, right? But here's what I want us to do today. I want us to go to Genesis chapter one. So if you got a Bible, you want to flip with me to Genesis one. If you don't have a Bible in printed form, but you got a device that you can follow along, I'd love for you to do that with me today. Uh, most of the scriptures will be up on the screen. Not all of them, but most of them will be on the screen today so you can follow along. But I want us to go to Genesis 1. And, and if you were here for Easter last week, you, you heard me go to Genesis 1 to tell a portion of the Easter story, really through the creation story. Um, and I want us to spend a little more time there in Genesis 1 today and really over these next few weeks because I believe there's some powerful truth there in Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin reading Genesis 1, 1, the first book, the first chapter, the first verse of the whole Bible. This is what it says. In the beginning, God. Stop. Stop reading. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's what you need to know about us at Canton Church. We believe that God created everything that there is. We believe that in the beginning, God like, that's enough right there. I could preach six weeks on that. I'm not going to do that. Just on those four words, I could preach, in the beginning, God. I mean, I could spend a week on every one of the words, and I could spend three weeks just on the dot, dot, dot. But I'm not going to do that today because I believe most of you are with me, that you believe in the beginning, God. 
In the beginning of all that was, there was something that created all that is. And I believe that that something, that someone is God. And so I want us to keep reading. God begins now in the formlessness, the emptiness, the void that was there, the chaos of Genesis 1. He steps into that. The Spirit of God hovers over the darkness of the waters, and he starts to create all that there is that has been created. And we continue reading in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, plural, make mankind in our, plural, image, in our, plural, likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So as we read in Genesis 26 through Genesis 30, we read that God has been creating some things, and we recognized last week that he split day from night, and he created light, and there was darkness, and so he created time, and then he created the heavens and the earth, and then as he's beginning to create all of these things, he has this conversation. He says, let us, now who is he talking to when he says, let us? In the beginning, God, so we recognize that God's there, he's not He's not not there, right? Double negative. He's there. And so who is he talking about when he says, let us make man in our image? Well, what we believe is that Jesus doesn't just show up in the book of Matthew when so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And we believe that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't just show up in the book of Acts when the Spirit of God descends like a dove. We believe that in Genesis chapter 1, when God is saying, let us make man in our image, that the three parts of the one person of God are communicating together to say, let us, God the Father, God the eternal Jesus, and God the Spirit, let us together make man and woman in our image. And that's a powerful truth for us because it helps us to realize that we don't have to wait until the New Testament to find Jesus in the story and to find the Spirit in the story. That Jesus, the eternal Christ, is in the story of the Old Testament and the Spirit of God is in the story of the Old Testament. And God is doing a creative work here in Genesis 1 to make all that would be created, including us, in his image, which is a powerful powerful truth. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, man and woman, have dominion over everything else that is created. Let them have dominion over the the fish and the birds and the cattle and the livestock and every creepy crawly thing. We read that three different times. How many of you wish that God would have just left that part out? Like just don't create the creepy crawly things. But let's take it out of the creepy crawly things and let's just keep it in the creep thing. How many of you ever had a creep in your life? Now, don't look at the person beside you because that would be rude. Here's the truth. If you've ever had a creep in your life that had power over you, you actually had power over that creep. Because he said, let us make man and woman in our image and let them have dominion. Let them subdue 
everything else. Nothing has power over them except me. And so we recognize that God is doing a creative work, and he has a creative order to that work. And he makes all of these things, and he creates all of these things, and he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he creates man and woman, and he said, it is very good. Look at this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I love the voice translation. This is a little bit of a different uh, take on the scripture that we just read. It's not going to be on the screen. This is what it says. One day the eternal God scooped up dirt out of the ground, sculpted it into the shape we call human, breathed the breath that gives life into the nostrils of the human, and the human became a living soul. God looked over all the earth and all the creative things that he was creating, and he took dirt. He created the heavens and the earth, and he picked up one of those created things and said, let us make man and woman in our image out of this dirt. And when I look at dirt, I think, I mean, that's nothing. It's just dirt. And it is just dirt. Webster defines dirt this way. It says that it's excrement or waste. It is a filthy or soiling substance and a loose, packed soil or sand. The third definition is what I'm holding in my hand. And I thought when I looked up the definition for dirt, that third definition would be the first definition. And maybe we would get to the other filthy, ugly, nasty things in number two or number three. But I thought we would get to the first one. Hey, it's this loosely or packed sand or soil substance. But the first two things that we find is that it's something filthy, that it's excrement, it's waste, it is nothing. It's this substance that is soiled and muddy and ugh. And it's also this sandy, soil, dusty thing. And yet God, as he looked over all that had been created up to that point, said, let us make man and woman in our image. And he scooped up the dirt of the ground and he breathed life into that dirt and it became a living creature. Now, The interesting thing is that then that dirt, which had come from the ground, now has the breath of God in it. It walks on the ground. And it's in that moment that God in his creative order has given power for the man and woman to to, uh, have dominion and to subdue everything under its feet. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me talk about this before. But that's why I think in our present culture, and not just in our present culture, but for sure in our present day, that's why addiction to substances is so strong. Because it flips the created order of God. We take the things, and I know there's synthetic drugs and things now, I recognize that. But we take things that come out of the ground, and we allow them to have power over us when we are meant to have power over them. This, with the breath of God breathed into it, has power over that. It's not the same thing. It's not the same substance. And yet there are things that come out of the dirt that we find ourselves addicted to because we think it has more power than me. I I can't control myself. I I allow it to control me. And yet we are created to subdue it and have dominion over it because this, with the breath of God, has power over that. And so when we find ourselves addicted to things, it's not just a physical or emotional thing. It is a spiritual battle because it is trying to invert the created order of God 
And the way that God intended us to live, to have dominion and to subdue those things that come out of the ground. And so what we recognize here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is a God of three things. The first is that God is a God of formation. He formed the earth. He took the dirt and he formed man and woman out of the dirt. The second thing that we see is God is a God of reformation or reformation because he takes things that are broken and he reforms them into something else. And the third thing that we see is that God is a God of transformation. He takes things that are and he transforms them into things that are different. And I would contend that are better for his purposes and for his glory. He moves them from one thing, one place, one identity to another place. He's a God of formation, reformation, and transformation. And we see that throughout scripture as God forms us out of the dirt And then God allows our stories to play out and then he intersects our stories at various points in time. And some of these Old Testament passages, we see that he's interacting with these these characters, these men and women of God in these stories. And he is reforming them or transforming them to be all that he desires them to be in that moment for his glory and for his purposes. Later in the book of Genesis, we read about Father Abraham. But before he's Father Abraham, he's just a guy named Abram. And his wife cannot have a child. There's no possible way. And so God, the God that forms us out of the dirt, he reforms the purpose and the identity of Abram, changes him to Abraham, gives him purpose, gives him identity, gives him promise, gives him a land, gives him a destiny. He says, I've got something different for you. And so he reforms Abram into Abraham. We see then that the promised child is Isaac. And we recognize that because his mother could not have a child, this is not a natural thing. This is a supernatural thing. And that God has reformed Sarah and transformed this situation into something supernatural so that Isaac could be the promise of God to fulfill the reformed purpose of Abram. And then we see Jacob, who shows up later in the story. And Jacob from birth, I mean prior to birth, is a deceiver. You know, anything about the story of Jacob and his brother Esau, Jacob is constantly trying to get ahead. He's trying to be smarter. He's trying to be faster. He's trying to be manipulative. He is is so deceiving to try to be the one that gets the blessing, to be the one that doesn't have to work as hard, doesn't have to do as much, to get things that aren't even due to him. And so eventually he finds himself on the run. And he's away from family. And there comes a point in the story when he recognizes, I've got to go back. And make amends with my brother, who I stole my birthright from, I stole the blessing from, i got to go back and i got to see him. And at this point, he has great wealth. And so he's going back, and he gets to the night where he's going to meet his brother the next day, and he's on one side of the river, his brother and his family is on the other side of the river, and he sends his possessions across, and he sends his family across, so that when his brother Esau encounters all the possessions and then all the family, by the time it gets to Jacob, he's still trying to manipulate the situation. By the time he gets to Jacob... Surely he'll forgive him. And on that side of the river, before he ever crosses over, that night he wrestles with God. And as he's wrestling with God, eventually he says, I'm not leaving here until you bless me. And so God blesses him, reforms him, changes his name from Jacob, deceiver, to Israel, which means heir to the throne, reforms his identity, reforms his purpose. And just before they get done wrestling, he reaches in and he touches the place of his hip and gives him a limp. So that for the rest of his life, he has been reformed to have to work or to walk with a limp. I don't have to walk with a limp. Some of you do. 
The only time I walk with a limp is on Friday morning because the church softball team plays on Thursday night. I'm not as young as I used to be. I try to stretch singles into doubles. Halfway to second, I realize that's a mistake. Friday morning, I'm limping. It happens. I don't know what's happening. It's just breaking down. So here's the deal. Friday morning, I wake up, and I realize, wow, I'm sore. This is ridiculous. I took eight Advil last night before I went to bed. I don't understand this. But the rest of his life, Jacob, now Israel, has been reformed so that every single step that he has to take from that point forward, he is reminded that he wrestled with God, was blessed by God, reformed for the purposes of God, and can't outrun and can't outsmart anybody to get what is not rightfully his. Because God is a God of formation and a God of reformation. We see after Jacob that we come later to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. That the Bible tells us, God said about Jeremiah, I formed him before I even knew him. I formed him in his mother's womb. I called him to be a prophet. I called him for purposes. I formed him. I reformed that purpose. I transformed his life. God had a specific idea in mind. We have talked about Peter in the New Testament a ton over the last few weeks. And I don't know why. It was not intentional. But Peter's one of the disciples, and I identify so much with the story of Peter because he just always seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. Even when he wants to be doing the right thing. There was a time when Jesus comes up to the disciples and said, who do, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And even in that moment when he gave the right answer, Jesus looks at him and says, you didn't come to that on your own. My father in heaven gave that to you. If I'm Peter, I'm like, man, I thought I had it for the first time. Peter just always seems to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And yet there comes a point late in the life of Jesus when Peter has the opportunity to stand with the Lord and he denies him three times. Prior to denying him, he tried to defend him. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter is standing there, sees what's happening and recognizes, this is my moment. He grabs a sword and cuts the guy's ear off that's trying to arrest Jesus. I can't prove this. This is probably the most heretical thing I'll say all day. And if it is, I'm so sorry, but I'm still going to say it anyway. I think there's a chance that Jesus is picking up the ear and putting it back on the guy's head, looking at Peter like, I cannot believe you did that. <laughs> you cut a guy's ear. God, I'm so sorry for this one. I mean, but then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God that breathed breath into dirt in Genesis chapter 1 falls in the upper room and Peter's there. And that breath of God, that power of God, that Spirit of God that was there in Genesis 1 that said, let us make man in our image rests on the people, including Peter. And he becomes the most powerful Pentecostal preacher of his day. And thousands are saved and added to the church in one day. The guy that was afraid receives the breath of God on his life. And there's power to speak the truth. God reforms and transforms Peter into something different. Later in the book of Acts, we see a guy by the name of Saul who's standing there as Stephen, a Christian, is being persecuted. He's being stoned to death. And Saul's the guy that's overseeing that it's happening. He's persecuting Christians. He's talking to government officials about how they can persecute more Christians. One day he's walking down a road and a light from heaven shines down onto him and he goes blind. And the voice of God speaks to him. 
and gets his attention and transforms his life. And his name changes from Saul to Paul. And he goes from persecuting Christians to being persecuted as a Christian and spending his life in jail and writing letters and sending stories and testimonies to this entire New Testament church in the first century. So much of what we know about God and so much of what we know about the ministry of Jesus comes from Paul who was Saul, but God transformed him because he's a God of formation and reformation and transformation because that's what God does. And yet his greatest work, his greatest work, I believe happened all the way back in Genesis 1 when he picked up Dirt. Now, we read last week that he said, let there be light, and there was. He could have done that again and said, let there be man. And then that was fast, but it would have taken him a while when he said, let there be woman, and here's how it's going to be constructed, and here's how this is going to work. Because women, obviously, there's a, there's a lot more to put a woman together than there is a man. I mean, no. He could have just said, let there be man. But that's not what the Bible tells us that he did. He took the dirt that was already created and made something. I remember when I was in elementary school and we started doing the pottery class. And I started out making like, I don't know, we didn't smoke in my house, but we made a cigarette tray or something or ashtray. Like, because that's all, it it was supposed to be a cup, but I ran out of material, and so it just kind of folded up, was an ashtray, because I didn't have it tall enough to be a cup, and my parents were like, oh, you made a birdhouse, and I'm like, yes, that's what I made, because I'm not good at making stuff, right? That's always a dangerous question when one of your kids draws something, they're like, daddy, look, and I'm like, you tell me what it is, it sure is a dog barking down the road, it is, because I'm not guessing, I've done that, I'm not making that mistake again. But God picked up dirt and he made something. And then he did that suddenly work when he breathed breath into that something that he created. But until he breathed that breath, it was just dirt. But he was forming it. He was making it. He was manipulating what was once dirt until it got to the place that he could look at it and go, yeah, That looks like me. Let us make man and woman in our image. Let us make man and woman in our image. It wasn't until it reflected his image that he breathed breath into it. It's probably other than the resurrection. Other than the cross, it's probably the most powerful thing in Scripture that I've ever read. I mean, yeah, miracles, teaching, changing Abram to Abraham, changing Saul to Paul, like it's all awesome. But the fact that he could turn that into you is miraculous. Because here's what we know. The more that it's in his hand the more it looks like him. And some of us, we want the benefits of God without having a relationship with God. We want to sit here and say, God bless us, and God do good things for us. Have those plans you've been thinking about us, God, not for our bad, but for our good. Like, God, do that. And God's saying, no, 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 listen. 
the more that you're in my hand, the more that I can mold you and shape you and make you into my image. And we're like, no, we don't want to be in your hand. Just breathe on us. Just let me come to church and you just make me feel good. He's like, no, 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 no. I, I want to make you and form you and reform you and transform you. Stay in my hand. Stay in my grace. Stay in my presence. I want to do something. And we're like, no, but we want to be here. And he's like, no, no, no. I could. And sometimes he does. But he's like, no, no, stay in my hand. If you'll stay in my hand, I can form you and make you and mold you and shape you into what I want you to be. Because God does his best work with stuff nobody else sees value in. God does his best work in stuff other people throw away. That's the truth. God does his best work with stuff nobody ever sees value in. There was a story in the Gospels, and John chapter 11 is one place where there's a guy by the name of Lazarus who's a friend of Jesus, probably a very close friend because of the family relationship. And Lazarus is sick, and Jesus stays where he's at doing ministry instead of going to heal Lazarus. He could do it. He, he makes the sick whole again, and he doesn't go do it. And then he finds out that he died, and Jesus stays where he's at, and he doesn't show up for four days. Jesus is four days late to a funeral of one of his best friends. If you call the church and say, Pastor... Somebody in my family died. I want you to come. The funeral's on Saturday at 2. And I don't show up till Wednesday. You're finding a new church. You're mad at me. You're writing on Facebook that he's so inconsiderate and doesn't do this and doesn't do that. What a scum of the earth. And you know what? You probably wouldn't be wrong. If I just decided to be four days late to a funeral, but Jesus shows up and he starts asking these crazy questions of Lazarus' sister, and he says, hey, don't you believe that your brother can live again? And they say, yes, Lord, of course he can live again at the resurrection. And this is what I told you on Easter last week. Jesus said, well, that's great because I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not an event. It's not a date on a calendar. It's me. It's relationship with me. He says, I am the resurrection. And so your brother can live again. And here's what he does. That was important that it was four days because those, they believed in that culture that the spirit had left the body and there was no way to resurrect him. And yet Jesus who we believe was on earth 100% man and 100% God, used his breath, the breath in Genesis 1 that spoke life into man and woman, the breath of Acts chapter 2 that breathed on those in the upper room and transformed them. Jesus used his breath to say, Lazarus. And he came back to life. He was dead. And he came back to life. And he walked out of the tomb in grave clothes. If you don't think that it stunk, you're wrong. It, he was not the only dead guy in that tomb. It, it smelled awful. He was in grave clothes. He had been dead for four days. And Jesus just said his name. Lazarus. Whew. Life. Re-entered Lazarus' body. He comes out. It's as if, and I'm reading into it here, but it's as if Jesus said, listen, it's going to stink a little bit, but I'm okay with things that stink a little bit, and I'm okay with things that are dirty because I do my best work in things that people see that have no value. That's what they think, but I say, man, there's value here. It smells bad to you, but it smells precious to me. There's something God wanted to do and wanted to show us. It was a foreshadowing of Easter. 
that even death wasn't more powerful than the power of God. But my favorite story about dirt in the Bible, other than the formation of man in Genesis 1, is found in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is the place where the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. This is what it says, first 11 verses of John 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I got to be honest, I've heard this preached hundreds of times in my life by far better preachers than me. And so I don't have a really great sermon out of this for you. But I got some truth out of this passage that I think connects to everything we've been talking about today. What you need to know is that this story wasn't really about this woman. This story was about the religious leaders and the teachers of the law trying to trap Jesus so that they would have something to use to accuse him to lead him to the cross, which they eventually found what they needed to try to get that. And they said... Here's this woman, and they bring the woman, and they just stand her there. Jesus is standing there teaching a bunch of people, and they bring this woman in. I don't know if they allowed her to cover up or not, but they just bring her there, and they made her stand there in her shame. And then they said, Jesus, remember, they're trying to trap him. In the law, Moses says that a woman that's caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. Well, that's not true. That's not actually what the law says. The law actually says that if a man and woman are caught in the act of adultery, they should be brought to the high priest. There's no man. And at this point, Jesus was not recognized as the high priest because according to some Jewish custom, which you can read about, what would happen is that they would bring the man and the woman accused of this act. It actually was very rare that they were caught in the act. It was just the rumors that became stronger and stronger until we're like, well, this has got to be true. So they bring the man and the woman to the high priest for him to decide if they're guilty. And according to some Jewish custom, what they would do is the high priest would take his finger and write the name of the man and the woman in the dust of the temple floor. And then he would hear their case. And he would listen to the evidence. And if they were guilty, then they were stoned to death. That's what the law said. But if they were not guilty, he would take his hand and he would rub it across the names that they had just been written on the floor because they were wiping away the sins that they had been accused of. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 13 says this, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. Later in the Gospels, it says that if you believe in God, your name will be written in heaven because that's eternal. But if you forsake God, your name is written in the dust because it will pass away. And so you come to this moment where this woman who has been accused with no man beside her 
And she's standing there left open for any accuser to say anything about her that they want to. And they ask Jesus this question. In the law, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? I would love for Jesus to answer them right there. Except he doesn't say a word. He just kneels down. And he starts writing in the dirt. I don't know what he wrote. It would be awesome if he was writing the name of the accusers. But I can't prove that's what he was doing. He just writes in the dirt. And then he stands up. And he looks at all those that are around. And he says, okay. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he stoops right back down next to the woman. Evidently, he has a lot of faith that they're either not going to throw rocks or they're going to hit her and not him. He stays close to her, kneels down, and starts writing in the dirt again. And the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the details of the next few minutes, other than the fact that one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they drop the stones and walk away. I assume that the woman with all of her shame and all of her guilt and all of her condemnation, has her head tucked down. Maybe she's bent down now, close to where Jesus was stooping in the dirt. I don't know it. I can't prove it. But I assume, as I play it out in my head, that when the first rock hit the ground, she thought they had thrown it and missed her. And she jerked. I can't prove it. And then she hears it thud over there and thud over there. Hit the ground over there. Hit the ground over there. And then eventually there's no more rocks hitting the ground. And Jesus says, where are they? I got to believe that she's not been looking at the crowd. So her head's bowed or she's knelt down or whatever. And so she has to kind of look up and look around to see if they're still standing there. He says, are there no more who accuse you? And she said, no, there's, there's none. And then Jesus models for us what is so hard to live out. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Some of you, when you hear this story, and they bring a woman that was caught in the act of adultery, she was guilty. You say, well, they probably should have stoned her. I mean, that's what the law said. And some of you are like, no, this is an amazing story of the grace of God. Thank God for his grace. And both of you would be right. Because what we find in the Gospels is that we are called to live a life of grace and truth. And some of us, we're just grace, 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 grace. The problem is that's unfair because we are not telling people the truth that they will eventually stand before a holy, righteous, judging God who must judge their sin. It's unfair. But some of us are truth, 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 truth. And that's unloving because we haven't shown them that God's grace is enough to cover their sins. And so Jesus, standing there with a woman who is guilty, the accusers leave, he says, neither do I condemn you, grace, go and sin no more, truth. Your enemy wants to bring you back and throw you into the dirt 
and tell you that's what you are. Say, this is all you're, amount, just all you're gonna ever amount to. Nobody in your family's ever done anything good. You're not gonna do anything good. You committed sins and indiscretions and there's shame and there's guilt. People labeled you. They call you stuff behind your back. This is all you'll ever amount to. And Jesus is right there next to you going, yeah, this is what you were, but I breathe life into you. You've got a new identity. There's something different about you. Your enemy wants to leave you here at your lowest point. And a God who is a God of formation, who recognizes that, and a God of reformation, and a God of transformation, says, no, 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 you don't stay here, because the Bible didn't end in Genesis 2, 8. No, you get up, and you go to the life and the purpose and the destiny with which I've called you, because I've breathed my life into you. I've given you power to be all that God wants you to be. Because he's a God of formation and a God of reformation and a God of transformation because God does his best work in stuff other people say has no value. We come out of the dirt and he breathes his life into us and we get to stay in his hand as he molds us and shapes us and makes us into something that looks just like him. And you say, well, I, you don't understand, Jeremy. I, 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 don't, I don't look like God. I don't think I reflect God very well. I, I feel like I'm just a piece of dirt. I would say to you, where are your accusers? Where, where, where are those who condemn you? I don't condemn you. If you got to change your lifestyle, go from this place and sin no more. But allow God to breathe his life into you and be transformed. Now here's the reality. You play with dirt, your hands get dirty. I'm going to have to wash my hands before I shake your hand on the way out today. And yet Jesus thought you were worth getting his hands dirty. Because later in his life, he would go to a bigger hill than this that had been formed from the dirt of the earth on a hill called Calvary with three crosses. And what we celebrated last Friday is that he would hang on that middle cross. Though he was blameless, he would take on our dirt and our sin and our shame so that we could take on his righteousness. And some of us today, we've never accepted that free gift of salvation. We've heard it prayed, we've heard it talked about, we, we kind of, ah, yeah, I mean, I'm a good person, I've been in church all my life. But we've never had a moment where we said, would you take my dirt and breathe life into me? And today's your day. Today's your day. Some of us, it's not a salvation issue. In a minute, we're going to pray for those who want to respond to ask the Lord to be the Savior and forgiver of their lives. But for some of you, it's not a salvation issue. You just say, you know what, Jeremy? At some point in my life, whether it was the words of somebody else or just what's going on in my head, I decided that I was still dirt. And I want God today to reform my identity. 
I want him to transform my life so that I'm not held in this bondage of who people say that I am, but I am connected to the purpose of God. And I walk with the confidence that I am who he says I am. I'm not dirt. I am the image of God. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Nobody looking around, if you would say to me, Jeremy, today I want to accept him as the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to accept what he did on that hill, on that cross. I want him to forgive my sins. I want him to breathe life into me, give me new life today. If that's you, would you lift your hand? You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Now, if you would say, Jeremy, it's, it's not salvation for me. But I have allowed the words of others or my own shame to convince me that I am worthless. I'm dirt. There's dirty parts of my past. And I'm asking God to breathe new life into me and help me to realize that I am made in the image of God. Would you lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. Tons of hands, just like in our first service. Look at me real quick before we pray. I didn't do this in the first service. Let me just say to you. I want Canton Church to be a place where we're not afraid to get our hands dirty. All right? Because there are people that we know and they are convinced that no one will have anything to do with them. But we will. Not because there's something special about us, but because we believe in a God who does his best work in things nobody else sees value in. And we believe he can breathe life into them. Would you stand with me as we pray today? God, I love you, and I thank you today for who you are. God, right now, I pray for every person that acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. I thank you for the free gift of salvation. I thank you, God, for the forgiving work that was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, God, today we acknowledge that you are saving people in this place, and that's incredible. And so, God, we thank you. We celebrate with them, and we celebrate with heaven. And now, God, I pray for every uplifted hand of every person that says there's something dirty about me. I've believed the identity others have given me. I've worn the label that others have given to me. But today, I'm asking God to take the dirt of my life and transform me, breathe new life into me. Allow me to see myself in the likeness and the image of God the Father because I want to walk out of this place with a freedom and a confidence and a boldness that I have never possessed before. And today's the day. God, I pray right now that you would do that work in us, that you would change us, change our hearts, change our identity. Let us see ourselves the way that you see us and let us walk in that newfound freedom. Because, God, we believe that you do your best work in things that other people see no value in. So, God, accomplish great things in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.